Most discussions of climate change focus on the environment and the physical system. But Dr. Gail Hachashka is a climate scientist who researches the human dimension of these issues, such as the ways in which our own personality and level of maturity determine how we approach climate change, how we understand it, and how we respond to it. Why is there so much denial, disagreement, and conflict over climate change? Gail Hachashka has some very intriguing answers. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh. Our co-host is John Dupuy, and with us today is Dr. Gail Hachashka, who is a researcher, coach, consultant on climate change and sustainable development. She's currently at the University of British Columbia and has done extensive research and published widely on climate change and a variety of uh, related issues. Fortunately, there are a growing number of people who are exploring climate change, and we need every one of them. But Gail adds a unique perspective, bringing a big picture, integral understanding and way of looking to these issues, a way which combines the best of contemporary research strategies and approaches and data and information analysis with a big picture interdisciplinary perspective with an understanding of different perspectives and approaches, and with a lens which includes an appreciation of adult psychological development, the way our understanding of ourselves and the world changes as we grow through different developmental stages. So this brings uh, allows Gail to offer some unique perspectives and understandings. Gail, welcome, and let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your research. What are, what are some of the most exciting findings that you that really have lit you up and have had a ripple effect so far? Oh, thank you. That's an interesting question. And it re- reminds me of one of the concepts on an earlier podcast you did with Thomas Bjorkman about how global problems are actually more like global symptoms. And that turns it back into, you know, what we've created many of these environmental issues that we experience today. But somewhere along the way, we've kind of forgotten that piece and focus on these solutions that are outward facing, they're exterior. So, you know, solutions that might be a new ways of doing things, new practices, new technologies, new ways to structure society and so forth. But really looking at like, what are the, what has shaped these, these problems such that we are now dealing with their symptoms. And that points back to ourselves. So a lot of, a lot of my, not just my research, but a lot of the practice that I've done with NGOs since really, oh gosh, like the mid nineties through till now, first in sustainable development practice in different parts of the world, and then focusing more from a research perspective in academia I would say what's most interesting to me is as we start to integrate these these human dimensions, these deeper interior aspects of how it is we are human, 
into these these global environmental problems, we come up upon you know maybe maybe some interesting strategy like ways to go about finding solutions. So I think that's for me it is a big category, one of the more interesting parts of of my work so far. And I can give some examples if you're interested in that. Yeah, why don't you pick uh, the most exciting example or finding you've come up with? Ooh, that's a that's a hard like just that's such a big a big question. But let me drop into it bit by bit here. One of the most interesting findings is how some of the issues we're dealing with today are so highly complex and so distributed across space and time. Like take climate change, for example, it's really hard to wrap our minds around. And so one of the findings we've we've had in research so far is typically, and this brings in some of my understanding of developmental psychology, adult developmental psychology, is, you know, we all make meaning of phenomena. We all make meaning of what we experience. And so the real question is how much of this complex object that we're trying to understand, can we make meaning of? And the extent to which we can, you know, in a sense, see all of it, we can make meaning of all of it. But often, and this is very, this is very intuitively understandable to many people, we grab a fragment because it, because it's so complex, all we can really get is a piece of it. But we build out a whole mental model of what we understand climate change to be based on the fragment. And just keep in mind, we're doing this about everything. If you're around, I, I have a 10-year-old daughter and I'm around her friends, which you know are throughout the elementary school in her school here in Vancouver. And I can see just in that, in that spread of ages, all the ways that meaning can be made, right? But that continues through adulthood. And so if you catch a fragment and build a meaning making around that, that's important for us to know, because here's what typically can happen is that climate scientists or policymakers use what we, we call the knowledge deficit model around climate action, which means, you know, let's say I'm a policymaker or a climate scientist. If I just give you a, all the climate science knowledge that you need then you will suddenly change how you live your life. And we kind of know that doesn't, we know by research that that doesn't happen, right? So- You're sparking a connection for me. Two and a half thousand years ago, Socrates assumed that if we just knew, had the information about what was, you know, about life, we would act skillfully, appropriately, ethically. Well, Freud, showed that there are other forces at work in the, in the <laughs> psyche. And so we may have the best of intentions. As St. Paul said, and John, you can probably quote book, chapter and verse, you know, the good I will to do, I do not do. So we've had these two streams of, well, if we just knew enough, we'd do the right thing. And then we've had this other more psychological depth of understanding that just because we know enough, doesn't you know it doesn't imply we're going to respond skillfully yeah. and it sounds like your the, the the climate research is now very much recognizing this mm-hmm. yeah i think that was first corinthians by the way roger could be wrong <laughs> what was that john <laughs> your quote i think it came from first corinthians i'm sure it did john thank you <laughs> john can you can you clarify what was the exact quote from corinthians uh he said the good that i would 
I can't do and the evil that I don't want to do, I'm paraphrasing, that I do. And it's just like your struggle between your highest ideals and what you know you're supposed to do and, and what your your body or your flesh in this case and, and, and you know, the way the Apostle Paul or the author of this epistle was talking. So there's that struggle between and it. Well, it was a follow up on what you said about or yeah. what Roger said. Just because we know what's right doesn't mean we actually change all our ways of behaving. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that moment is very interesting. They call it a values action gap in climate engagement research, because increasingly a lot of people in society do care very much about climate change. So it's not that they don't value climate action, but when it comes to actually making changes in moment to moment lifestyle choices, things drop out in that same tension that you're describing. So if you slow down that moment and really and really look at all, all the aspects that are coming to play in those decisions. It's a very rich space. And I would say, you know, someone's meaning making is, is one part and it's a very important part. And I'll explain why in a moment, but there's all these other aspects that are pulling on our attention that are influencing our decisions. So yeah, it's been, it's been really great to spend time in that space to slow it right down. And look at, you know, it's not that we don't have excellent climate policies that are very much research-based. It's not that we don't have the technologies. They're, they exist now. But there's something in that, you know, people's perceptions and then how they interpret those perceptions in lived ways that can be actually where implementation stalls, right? Like climate, climate action fails to get traction there. So the reason that meaning-making is so fascinating to me is that you can't care about something or act on it fully until you're aware of it fully. And so there, there's there's a sort of a first among equals quality to meaning making. So that role that awareness has and this, the clearing space it provides for anything else is actually really critical. So I've thought of this in a couple of different ways and I'm, I'm drawing here on you know work with the small NGOs, environmental NGOs that I worked with in Latin America and Africa and parts of Canada, and also in, in some of the research that we've been doing. You know, you can work with awareness in the case of sustainability to foster more world-centric awareness, right? That's one big piece. And there's lots we can do on that regard because world-centric awareness would be like the first time really where inherently there's a drive and a motivation to care for the earth, right? But here's the problem. And it comes down to my 10-year-old is that there's never going to be a moment where we're all world-centric because we're all born, we're all born and we grow up, you know? And so that's the beauty of what it means to be human. And I would never want it to be otherwise, right? But it does, it does present to us another question. You know, what are the other ways to work with awareness then? And that's in some ways where things get really interesting. And that's one of, I think, Roger, when you said one of the most interesting findings so far is, is really that, you know, when we pause that moment and ask someone, like, what is important to you? And they start to unfold their own awareness around life and what's in it and, you know, what they care about and what's deeply important to them. They show you where they're coming from. And that provides a very different moment to do, to do climate change engagement. So, yeah, I've, I've referred to it as instead of having, say, a climate scientist or a policymaker kind of tell you what you need to do, instead, like starting from 
you know, one's own meaning making and staying sovereign in that meaning making. So that sovereignty gives rise to a whole, a whole maybe more creative or unique or even more effective ways to carry out climate action if it's connected to what is most important to you. So how does how does that land for you, Roger? I see you sort of nodding and <laughs> smiling. Well, I'm in, I'm intrigued. You're sparking all kinds of ideas and recognitions, so which uh, I think yeah. are very valuable, and perhaps also for uh, our listeners. One of the ideas you just sparked was, as what I heard you saying was that, well, several several valuable things. One is that providing more information isn't 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 enough. That's not not the issue. It's not a, necessarily a knowledge deficit issue. And the values action gap I hadn't heard of before, make, but it makes total sense. And then, okay, so then then you I hear you inquiring into, okay, what's underneath that values action gap? And one of the things I heard you saying was that, well, we you know we all keep growing through. We can keep growing not just through childhood, but through adulthood as well. And at different stages, we make meaning in different ways. And what I heard you saying, which is, I think is probably a new a new understanding for climate change work and a lot of other environmental work, is that we really need to speak to those different ways of understanding. We need to first know what they are, second, speak to them. And the insight you set off for me is, there's a beautiful concept from the psychologist Carl Jung of a Gnostic intermediary. And uh, Jung described a Gnostic intermediary as someone who transmit wisdom across cultures. And so uh, three things required of the Gnostic intermediary. First, they have to imbibe the wisdom themselves. Second, they have to learn the language and meaning making and concepts of the culture they're speaking to. And third, they have to be able to translate their own understanding into those concepts and perspectives of the audience they're speaking to. What you made me realize now, traditionally, a Gnostic intermediary has been, has been, it's been referred to as someone who speaks across different cultures from, say, the transmission when Buddhism came. Well, it's now coming to the West, as mm-hmm. are a lot of the Eastern traditions. So there's a need to translate some of those concepts into, into Western language and and understanding. There's also a Gnostic intermediary across time. Part of our work is to take the great wisdom of our own Western traditions, translate them into contemporary terms so as to make sense of them. So there's a Gnostic intermediary across time. But what you're pointing to, which I hadn't seen before, is there's a need for Gnostic intermediaries, that is for people who can translate across different developmental stages. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's a unique contribution of the research you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting phrase, Gnostic intermediary. I like it. Yeah, I, I think so. And where it's coming from is, is it's a really humanist way of approaching engagement on environmental issues where, you know, yeah, it's like letting go. It, it, it takes some, it takes some of your own self-awareness to just actually let go of your own agenda. And it's, it's hard. We get like, if you spend a lifetime or a career invested in something, it's actually hard to let go of that and just go, okay, set that aside. Right. But we used to do this, this exercise in our integral leadership for sustainability programs in Africa, but also in parts of Latin America. And it was, a, it was called the five whys. 
So you ask someone like, you know, what is most deeply important to you? And then you ask five whys, but you, you never really get to the fifth why, because by two or three, someone's already speaking from this, from what is deeply important to them at, at its core, you know, not at, at, at the surface components of it. And my, my sense from both a humanist way of engaging with, you know, fellow people, but also as a researcher is that when you can really be in that kind of relationship, there's, it's felt, it's felt across the interpersonal communication. There's a much greater regard and a much greater respect. And it's, they're not bumping into your ego and your attachment to your ego before they get to you, right? It's like, it's just human to human. Well, you're, you're asking questions and then you're listening to them. I don't see how that's a really wise thing to do. That's Socrates. And, you know, instead of you, you know, trying to pour all your data down people. And let me say, I've been, you know, one of the big things when I started, you know, discovered Ken Wilber's, the second part of his work yeah. was the developmental part. And there was a book called Boomeritis. And in the index, he had a conversation, fictional characters of five different levels talking about their reaction to 9-11. Okay. And I read that and ding, we got, we got to put it on the website. It's such a brilliant piece of work. And all of a sudden, one of those major flashbulb moments in my life, you know, just, oh, yeah, I started seeing all this. And I've read a lot of the literature on developmentalism, and I've done a lot of field work. In other words, I talk to people, ask questions and listen for for a long time now. And my first hint about about climate change, I was in, it must have been in Western Oregon or some really out of the way place. And there's the guy behind the desk in the hotel, and I mentioned something about the radical weather and made some reference to climate change. Mm-hmm. He got really angry at me yeah. as if I were some minion, a satanic minion that, that was, you know, come into, I don't know, whatever. And I was like, wow, I thought that was about as harmless, you know, talking about the weather could be a real touch point issue. And it has become, and I know it's like that in Canada, but in our very divided country, you know, you have the, the right wing, which mm-hmm. just doesn't care or realizes that the 30% or the 60% of their people who make up the Republican party now do not care and think it's a lie. And it's a conspiracy to make us stop using gasoline or something or whatever it is. There, there's a lot of ideas why would be doing that. And so they're very hostile to that. And then you have on the other side and progressive kind of, you know, it's almost panic and grief and it's the end of our planet and, and there's nothing can be done. So mm-hmm. there, there has to be some place in between. And I think that's what you're indicating in your approach where we begin to, to heal this rift in a way that we can actually get something done that is not threatening to a large part of our population. Yeah. 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 So there are so many things that come up for me as I, as I, as I listen to you on that. And one, I'm glad you mentioned Ken Wilbur, because there's, there's something he said, like maybe even 10 years ago now. And I wrote it down because it's so right on. He said, and it, it was not written. I believe it was in like a, a conversation or an interview. Like it was something, you know, just that he spoke. He said, find at least one thing in another person that you can really appreciate. And if you can do that, they will feel it. And that can open up communication beyond difference since you'll be coming spirit to spirit, gratefulness to gratefulness. 
And and that like that is so true. That's incredible. It's so incredible. Isn't that a great quote? So so right on. But you know, it it's so true. And the thing is, is that I've tested it. Like I and maybe you have too, but and so that now it's just quite innate and I feel like it's quite innate in me. I mean, sometimes I can slide into like my own stuff, but you know, often just sitting at the dinner table, what do they say? Like, don't talk to your family about religion, politics, or global warming, because <laughs> you know? they're, they're issues that spark people's energy, right? But in one instance, I was with someone else's family, and we were just chatting. It was just lunch. And, and one of the uncles starts raising this notion of strange weather passing through and, you know, the loss of certain crops because of hail. And this is strange at this time of year. And and just really like innately, I don't even think that anybody at the table knew that I worked in climate change, but really quite just sort of innately, I said, oh, why do you think that's the case? And I wasn't even seeding it to take it into the climate change conversation. I just was quite curious, like what meaning did he make about this strange weather? And so he just sort of sits back and he's like, well, well I suppose it's global warming. And, and so like he said it, not not me, you know, and then he started to kind of I don't know, like fold in on his own thought there and, and almost debate himself on it. And I, it was just really interesting, but it did presence from his own sense of what was occurring, this larger global phenomena. So it was very interesting. And, you know, I didn't even really notice what had happened there until later. And then my friend said like, what did you just do at lunch? Like, that was really interesting, you know, but I, I don't think that, and I don't think that that polarization serves us in the long run. You know, and and you guys in this, I'm in Canada and we're we're tracking a similar direction as the States right now. You've had more experience with this than we have. So we're just kind of getting our mind around it. But being able to pause in our conversations and create more space for more perspectives is a key part in dealing with polarization, in my opinion. I don't know if we'll ever have an exact shared meaning about issues like this. But hopefully we'll have somewhat of a Venn diagram where we can find the middle. And, and that's like the third way that I would say I've worked in and researched awareness and meaning making is around that shared sense, like beyond polarization, like how we might find some, this is a collective action challenge. So how can we have sufficient collective meaning around it to cohere our collective action? And what, have, and what have you found that helps? You've mentioned a couple of things there, but th this is one of the great issues of our time, how we can bring very divided populations to a recognition, first, as you implied, of our common humanity, yeah. uh, second, the, you know, uh, to see at least some fundamental goodness in each person instead of defaulting to demonization, and third, a recognition of shared areas of concern and value and, uh, and appreciation. Yeah. I mean, a big one is just being able to get in the same room together, you know, so in kind of a, a micro setting, you, you, it's hard on the macro to visualize how this works, but if you bring it down, you know, if, if you in your room right now, just look around at the objects you have in your space, they've all come through about a supply chain. And the, the notion of supply chain is in our public awareness right now because of the pandemic. And so supply chain issues have led to a delay and whatever, right? But the truth about those supply chains is that any, in any one moment, we are connected to the world because those products have come through different 
you know, producers, then, re- then, you know, buyers and then through to retailers and so forth. So I took one, you know, participants in one value chain, actors across one value chain and brought them in the same room together, which is, is kind of, it doesn't happen a lot. You know, when, especially when it comes to things like the, the work I was doing is on coffee. And so we rarely think that the coffee we're drinking in the day is linked to all these individuals, right? And each individual adds value to that as it comes through from the farm all the way to your, your espresso or your latte. So we got everybody together. So the coffee growers, the people that were buying it, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to one of the fourth largest retailers in, in the States. And what was so beautiful to see was from those different positions, those different backgrounds, the different sorts of familiarity with the issue of climate change, the different direct experience of climate change, different perspectives, we had conversations and started to realize this is a shared problem. You know, this is a shared problem across this value chain. It, It affects everybody differently, but climate change threatens your cup of coffee every morning. And it, it might mean something to you in regards to your morning, your morning practice, you know, of, of making a cup of coffee, but it would also affect livelihoods of people that live cultivating coffee every day, right? All, and every actor in between. So from this place of common, common, you know, common ground, we have a, we have a common problem we need to like, get our minds around, you know, start there, start with something really lived and real. And start to find that common space of, of meaning and shared action. Yeah, I've, I've also found, and you can't fake this. <laughs> if you fake okay. it, it's going to be worse. But if you can speak from that place of scripture, of faith, of, of being stewards of the earth, uh, being responsible, that, you know, that Jesus coming back and he gave us this. And what's it going to look like? You know, and, yeah. and you see these things. Also, I found in Mormon culture, I've lived, I've lived in a very conservative Nine years in the Bay Area, but then I did something different. But they have a lot of respect for our Native American wisdom because of their theology and the history of that. So I would, you know, just quote Chief Seattle and uh, to, to Mormons, and they just they, they really touch deeply. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I tried to give them a bunch of data that I saw on MSNBC or CNN, that wouldn't work so much. So there are ways that we can cultivate those connections, and I certainly have connected to both those traditions quite deeply. Others are very yeah. devout young man Christian who absorbed lots of scripture still in me and inform me. So I'm able to share that. Yeah, that's true. And we're getting into a, a, both a very beautiful and a very practical topic here, which is finding ways in which we connect can connect with others and recognize our shared humanity and values and our shared investment in the preservation of our planet, its well-being, and the multiple threats it's facing. And both of you have pointed to different ways of approaching this. And and to just to expand on your beautiful image, Gail, of just reflecting on what it takes to all the work it takes, for example, to, <laughs> to get our cup of coffee or do a, a breakfast or a meal. Yeah. Uh, sometimes when I'm in retreat, I do, do, this, do a reflection on this on so-called the inter- interdependence reflection, just just taking one piece of food and just yeah. reflecting on all the people that were involved in creating this. And, of course, as you, you implied, you can take it out through the supply chain, 
from the people who brought it to, brought it to, to the kitchen or from the kitchen to the to the table all the way back to the farmers then then you can take it to the people who created the the machinery to do the farming <laughs> and then you start looking well wait on those people wouldn't be alive if they weren't fed if they weren't clothed if they weren't immunized etc cetera, etc cetera. you start to realize that quite literally almost everyone on the planet was involved in some way and you're getting you know your grape your coffee this morning yeah. and then you trace it back through history to realize you know without millions of people who created and invented everything from machinery to engines to to a plow you know, we wouldn't be alive let alone getting our coffee and you suddenly realize you are the beneficiary of a web of connection or what the hindus would call the net of indra the great the recognition that everything in the universe is interconnected and reflects and impacts each each other and it's like it it ends up in a you know effectively a meditation on boundless gratitude yeah it's quite extraordinary yeah yeah i mean it's beautiful what you're saying it's it's interesting because it's simultaneously a practice like that's a practice that you said that you sometimes do on retreat and it's a practice i was in some ways inviting us into and so that's it kind of cultivates a state of consciousness of being one with all but there's also a way in which it's a stage meaning as we know that as later stages of development look upon something like climate change more of the interconnections are seen on that issue and the tricky thing here is that getting back to the fragment right so we we grab a fragment of the issue we build out our our meaning our mental model of it but we forget we did that and we come into communication with others and we're all talking from our fragments not realizing that that's only a bit of it right and so you know it's all great and fine at the dinner table that i was describing over lunch but it becomes really tricky when you're in an intergovernmental meeting you know globally there can be difference and there can be debate and you know in some ways having a developmental understanding of perspectives on this complex matter may help us to navigate some, through some of those debates it's really interesting but yeah greater visibility of the interconnections when you mentioned both across space but also across time both those dimensions seem to be more expanded through at these later stages and with something like climate change it is intergenerational like we can't get around that you know so it's so it, the the more of time you can take in the more fully you're under, you know you're grasping this notion of climate change and its impacts on humanity and the and the world the earth so and what what else i'm just thinking like flexibility around a, a bit of what i'm what i'm saying and how you're both demonstrating it as we're talking like a flexibility of your own attachment to yourself and being able to step aside that is also somewhat we're finding that in later stages as well with that comes greater self responsibility it's like okay i have some skin in this game how am i going to make a difference here that's that happens later not ten, not usually earlier in in stages of meaning making so yeah that that dimension is very relevant and it's not had a lot of space in current climate change research so a lot of the there's there's increasingly more articles coming out about it 
that are will be helpful as we move further into this, into res- resolving some of these tendencies to fragment, like our tendencies to polarization, I, I believe need some understanding about why we're polarizing. And that can be one important piece. Yeah. And, you know, I've lived also in, in the country. And when you live in agricultural areas where people are raising cattle and food and it's what they do, they're often very conservative, but they really think it's silly for environmentalists to come out of the city with all their high pollutant ideas. And it's like, this is what we do, you know? And if, it, yeah. if we didn't do what we did, you wouldn't have the energy to come and preach to us about what we're doing wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. find that just asking, and, and it's true, we are dependent upon yeah. our farmers, whether we like their methods or not. We would, you know, we would all starve, or at least a lot of us would. And to to ask questions with a lot of respect, you know, what is your experience? How are things are going? You know, yeah. and not like leading a, like a lawyer, but just to listen. And you don't even have to, to do summations of mm-hmm. you know, the answers. Therefore, would you, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's just, and, and they feel it. They've been hurt by, you know, their crops getting lost because of too much rain or yeah. going through huge droughts. Like in California, 10 years, there's no water. And all of a sudden the spigot's on and it's all coming back in a few weeks. You know, I mean, these, 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 these different things, but there was a quote, another quote by Ken that I, that was formative. And I hope I don't sound like this know it all because I don't, and I'm really struggling with this, but it's a very important issue to me. But he said, and I'm perhaps paraphrasing that there is no problem that is facing human beings where the solution is not developmental. And, and I heard that and I went, Oh, well, that's just simplistic. And how you, blah, blah, blah. And so then I just started using it as a koan and going, Yes, you know, when you deeply think about it, war and peace, environment, the earth, population growth, all of this stuff, these solutions are are developmental because at a certain point, people start behaving better. As we get to higher levels of development and are supported in that, we start changing culture and we become more sustainable. And, you know, like how the majority of Americans just don't drive down the road and throw their malts or their beer bottles out the windows anymore that's changed just in my generation people start no that's not right and we start behaving a little better so the question is is it too late can can we and i mean it's it's the only game in town if we want long-term solutions so we can sustain our our species and and all all the sentient beings that deserve our support too over time we're going to have to grow into or at least create healthy versions of these lower levels as you were saying we all start down here you can't expect a you know a 10 year old to understand what you understand at four year 50 not that you're four year 50 yeah so it's anyway i found hope in more hope in your paper and your approach to this issue because you really bring front and center the idea of development that different people uh, different levels of development see the world in completely different ways and their worldviews are often hostile to each other so there has to be some level where we can begin to, to sew it together with compassion and understanding and if we by grace or hard work or whatever get to these higher levels we are fortunate but to not use it as a, a pulpit to hammer people and you know be self-righteous or you know try to force our very developed ideas but as a way to acquire wisdom and effectiveness and 
and beginning to heal mm-hmm. the human family in a way we can we can get along with each other and you know do something about these usage and issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a few things coming up for me, and I just want to go back to the farmers for to start with. There's some parts of my research in El Salvador, Guatemala, you know, here in North America, really focuses on how because like climate change adaptation has been. There's a lot of good science behind it, and there's you know recommended climate adaptation things you should do on your farm. But but here's the thing: if if it's from that pulpit, as you're saying, it just sort of set down on people. It's like they know their farm, <laughs> they know their local area. You know, there's there's such innate wisdom. And when you, I'm thinking also to indigenous cosmologies, like they're they're deeply they've lived in these spaces for far longer than some climate climate adaptation specialists, right? So there's a way in which these you know, actually saying, okay, from within your own understanding of this issue, what makes sense for adaptation to this, this challenge of erratic weather conditions that are part of climate change. And typically given that given sovereignty over their own meaning making, like just that's, you know, not, not even given, but like owning and dropping into one's own sovereign, sovereign meaning making, the solutions end up becoming, they're, they're just better connected to reality they're, they're more owned by the people, therefore they're carried out better. Like it's, I'm not saying that the climate adaptation specialists aren't correct. They might be absolutely correct. But what, what it matters is that people actually do them, right? And so if they're not going to take them up, then, you know, however great the knowledge had, had been, it, it's, it's not happening. It's not, it's not being carried out. So what could be carried out that makes greater meaning to people is, is in some ways, in my thought, you know, more effective to do, because at least they're going to do it, right? And so, yeah, greater creativity as well. It just great, greater ownership pro- provokes greater creativity. And just, as I said, connection with place. So there's a lot there in what you're saying about farmers. Or what you're saying, sovereign meaning-making. What yeah. a great phrase. I don't think I've heard that before. That's huge. Well, I have to say... I started using it and and I don't really, I actually don't listen to many podcasts just because I'm a single mom. I work full time. I don't have a ton of, I don't have a ton of time. And so it was much later that I realized some, someone out there, one of the podcasters was using sovereignty as well in, in, in a slightly different way to me, but getting at the same idea. I'll remember who it is in a moment, but yeah, it's, it's really, it, it's the difference between feeling like you have a place, you actually matter in this big, this big, seemingly incredible issue that's so hard to touch and feel and taste. So, so, so many people just feel like, oh, I I can't change. I can't have an effect regarding climate change. Like I, I'm not part of the solution because it's too big. Right. And, you know, re-owning, oh no, I have a, I have a sovereign meaning making about this issue. And these are the things that I feel I can do. You, you regain so much. You regain a sense that you matter, empowerment, place, you know, so there's, there's lots about it. And what I'm doing, if, if you'll notice, is that developmental research or theory or what have you, it's, it's lived experience and it's lived solution sets are, are so much juicier than it looks on paper. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you're catching that, but it's just there's such a sort of uh, honest and genuine kind of humanity in it. 
that I think can get lost when we look at like some of the pure research or the pure theory. But that's my experience. And, you know, the salt of the earth is the farmers have the wisdom uh, in my experience. So one thing we did getting, getting back to some of the research that really excites me, Roger, in regards to your first question is we use photography to a process called photo voice. And so using either giving, you know, lending out cameras or letting people use, like if they had smartphones, they would use their smartphone. They would take photos in response to a question of like, what does climate change mean to me? And they would use photos in the regular flow of their life. So like, you know, if they were on the coffee farm or they were cultivating their, their corn or whatever it might be, whether they were going to church, whatever it was, you know, they could reflect on that question and take photos. And then selected from that, you know, their top three photos and then, you know, described what that meant to them and gave it a title and created this sort of interpersonal space to reflect on like, what is this? What is this? This issue in my life, like not this big hyper object that's hard to wrap my mind around, but like right here, right now, what is it? It was really a powerful way to source some of that innate insight that people contain in their lived experience. You know, I'm a veteran of the U.S. Army and down here in the South where I'm living now, mm-hmm. when people find out, thank you for your service. You know, they shake your hand. They sincerely mm-hmm. mean that. And not so much in Berkeley and San Francisco, in my experience. <laughs> but what if we did that with farmers, too? You know, you find a farmer or a pizza or wherever, friends, just say, sir, I, I get your farm and I want to thank you for yeah. your service. and. Let us know what we can do to support you. You know, yeah. I, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for your work, you know, and just acknowledging that. And I yeah. think they can, people can get feeling is, isolated, unacknowledged, and and it's kind of lonely, you know. Mm-hmm. When you know you're doing something important, yet it's not recognized, and it's yeah. not a helpful way to be. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. Gail, you've mentioned the importance of understanding the way diff- different people make we make sense of of life in general, but climate change in particular, in different ways, depending on all sorts of things, our work, our location, our geography, but also our, uh, according to developmental stages. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the way meaning making changes as people mature. I think you've implied a couple of things so far. You've said as people continue growing, both through childhood and in adulthood, we tend to take see more factors at work, more interactions, and also have a bigger time frame. But what else are some of the ways that perception and understanding changes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's great. A, a really great question. So, what changes? I, I invite you, if you're listening, to just reflect back on your own experience. But also on, you know, people, you know, if you if you have a family, like your, you know, perhaps your children, and just listen, like just consider what I'm saying in the context of that. So what changes across maturation of meaning making is the object of awareness becomes more and more and more subtle. So the earlier, and I use the words earlier and later, because that that kind of reflects more truly the, the sort of lifespan process in this. But the earlier stages are quite a lot, quite a lot more concrete than the later ones. So the objects of awareness are concrete. So climate change is is not really climate is an abstract idea. It's about the weather. You know that the fact that the conflation of climate and weather 
that frustrates climate scientists to no end is largely understandable when you understand when you look at the developmental frameworks, right? Because that's just how meaning is put together. That there's there's a concrete object of awareness, and there's also sort of an immediacy. It's like what what's happening right now. It's raining when it shouldn't be. That's in an earlier way to convey a sense of climate change. So object of awareness is one. The other thing that changes is the, is the complexity of thought. So this you can see in utterances, like how people put together their sentences, but just in how they make meaning. So for example, the earlier stages, I, I've came up with this term, bits and pieces. It's like meaning is sort of put together in this bits and pieces way. And sometimes you'll rem- you'll recall this with, you know, a child will go through something they liked and they'll tell you bit, bit by bit all about this thing, whether it was a book or a movie or a video game. And it's just like, they, they don't have the whole, they just have all the bits. You know, it's like a name for every bend in the river, but no name for the river. You know, so so that that kind of complexity of thought is is typical of the earlier stages. And then the other thing I've already mentioned was the, the expanse of space and time. So usually the, the earlier stages are, are very in the now, immediate, as I had said. So immediate, there is some, you know, as maturation occurs, as development occurs, there's more of a stretch to look into the past. But the future is still not really that online until later. So that's, those are the concrete stages. Their object awareness is concrete. The complexity of thought is, is fairly atomistic or bits and pieces. And the range of space and time is, is quite immediate and in the now stretching a bit to the past. The more subtle stages start to use abstract concepts. So you start to hear it. It's like, oh, wow, that's an abstract idea. You know, my, my, my daughter's starting to get that. She was talking at the dinner table last night and was, was putting together this situation around, around electric cars in Oslo and, you know, and going on and on about this stuff. And I, we had a friend who was having dinner with us and I, he doesn't really know kids. And I was thinking to myself, does he know that most 10 year olds don't talk like this? <laughs> it was quite funny, but so the more abstract concepts come in. And so that's the, that's the object of awareness. The complexity of thought starts to employ different, just brings in more complexity. So the idea of cause and effect, the idea of interaction effects, you start to see the relevance in climate change. Like climate change is a complex phenomenon that is derived of interaction effects. If those don't really happen until the subtle stages of development, you know, when you talk like that, when you talk about climate science, assuming an ability to understand interaction effects, you might be missing a whole bunch of, of folks who don't make meaning that way. Right. And so at the later range of the subtle stages, you start to have people understanding complex adaptive systems. So it's getting more into even greater degrees of connectivity. And then the space and time expands more. So you, you do have folks thinking about the future, but it's the future is tricky. Like even five years out is hard for people to conceptualize. So when we talk about climate change and we're talking about large trends in weather patterns across vast amounts of time, it's tricky for a lot of us. Like it just is. So the later stages that we know of, things start to get interesting because there's a way earlier versions are more, they understand that context is important. So anything I'm saying depends on the context I'm in. That's that's a very specific kind of meaning that comes up later. But further than that, the construct is also 
what I'm saying depends on the construct of my consciousness. And that awareness comes, comes to play. We call it construct aware is the, is a stage that I'm referring to. And so that also becomes a, a space that's very interesting for climate action. So you become aware of the, the theoretical philosophical system you're a part of. Is that what the construct aware is? Right. So you're, yeah. I believe, you know, I'm Bible centric or something like that. And you yeah. kind of see that as your, your box and you start to recognize the box. Exactly. And, and not the box in a negative sense, but this is, this is my container. This is what holds me and this is where I'm standing. Right. So it's you you become aware of your awareness, really, of what's form what's forming that your paradigm, you're calling it your box, I, I would think of it as like a paradigm, or, you know, even folks that are like, I don't have a framework, they're talking out of their framework, you know, at some sense. So this awareness of awareness is very interesting. And I pointed to it earlier around flexibility, like it creates more flex- flexibility in your in your response times, because you're just stepped that much further back from yourself in a sense so you just have that much more time to kind of be more conscious about how you want to react so there's greater flexibility but there's other things too when you realize that we're constructing consciousness what else can you construct stay tuned for part two of our discussion with dr gail hachashka as she dives deeper into some details of the ways in which climate will impact all our lives today's episode was brought to you by iawake technologies visit the deep transformation website to find out more about iawake's audio tools designed to wake us up grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice thank you for joining us If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.